Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new Access for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicking along over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's the return of Magic Mondays, and we couldn't be more excited than to bring you some of Marvel's most sorcerous titles. We're going to kick things off with the final two issues of Peach Momoko, Zach Davison's, and Ariana Mars brilliant reimagining of the X-Men universe with the final parts of Demon Days. Before we turn things over to Alyssa Wong's incredible reimagining of Iron Fist with the second issue of that title. Now, I loved being on the coverage for the first three issues of Demon Days. That was, of course, Demon Days X-Men, Demon Days Mariko, and Demon Days Cursed Web. And for Rising Storm and Blood Feud, you know, we cover so much here on the series that sometimes you just can't be on every title. So it was amazing to have some new voices come in and express their opinions on these five titles all together. So the coverage is a little bit the final two, Rising Storm and Blood Feud, but we also have some incredible opinions on the first three issues and it's also mentioned in the course of this episode that there's a Demon Days X-Men creators cut with even more incredible behind the scenes and I love when Marvel takes the time to give an AU the opportunity to really kind of flesh out and make it something that leaves such a lasting imprint with readers. Now that's not going to be the last thing we have of Demon Days as it's since been revealed that we're going to get more Demon Days with Iron Samurai and I'm so excited for what the potential of this universe really could be. Marvel has been very selective with how many AUs they've been running in the background since the events of Secret Wars, and I think by being so careful with which ones they launch, it really gives gravity to those that they do, and Demon Days has been a pleasure to read beginning to end, and I am certainly excited to return to the coverage of Demon Days for this upcoming series, and for all of the ways in which Peach, Zack, and Ariana are going to reimagine this world even further. We hope you guys enjoy our coverage and as always if you like what you hear don't forget you might even like what you see so don't forget to give us a follow over on twitter at x is for podcast hey everybody welcome to another exciting segment of x for podcast where we talk about mutants magic and marvel week after week i'm nathan you can find me on twitter at dazzler aoa that's like dazzler in the age of apocalypse hello it's me steve and you can find me on twitter at howdy duda that's h-o-w-d-y-d-u-d-a and that would make me raven aka dame red thread come and find me on twitter and instagram and i'm tori sheehan you can find me on twitter at tori underscore sheehan and on instagram at s I'm Tori. That's Tori with an I. And folks, I hope you survive the experience, much like apparently Black Widow's been surviving this whole time. I know. I was so happy in like the reunion at the end. Uh, and I guess that means we are talking about Demon Days Storm Rising and Demon Days Blood Feud. These are the last two issues in the X-Men Demon Days saga, which has been amazing. It's with story and art by Peach Momoko, Zach Davison does the English adaptation and dialogue. Dialogue. NBC's Ariana Mayer is on our lettering, and 
guys, like, y'all, I gotta say, like, this team together has to be, like, one of the tightest teams I've ever seen on a comic. Like, I'm so glad that they've announced the new Demon Days Iron Samurai and the team is gonna be together for it because, y'all, I can't imagine this universe substituting out either Zach Davison or Ariana Mayer because they both add so much to it. Yeah, this team is incredibly tight and I've really been enjoying the work that they do together. I love that they have their own, like, Earth X, but Demon Days now, and I hope it continues. I think it, it's such a rich world, and it's so cool to see these characters reimagined. Yeah, it, it, oh, between the artwork and the story, the way they wove mythology together with comic lore, oh, so, so well done. It's not just the Dream Team, but I think that it is bringing a lot of Western readers into a lot of the history and the importance of Eastern storytelling, manga, and comics that are coming out of Japan. I think it's a really stunning way to bring people into a whole new genre that they might not have otherwise gotten into. Absolutely. Yeah, this has got me definitely wanting to learn more about the Oni that we have the real world counterparts who are characters that we're seeing in the story and just dig more into this Japanese like folklore and this rich environment that Peach is really kind of creating for us. I should have picked up that left catio herd book. I should have. <laughs> I'm loving the costume design. That is mm-hmm. the thing that is just grabbing my attention. You can yeah. still like very much tell who people are, or in or in Logan's case, who doggies are. Yes, <laughs> yes. We've been talking about this a lot on previous coverage. That <laughs> what the idea of certain mythological oni or yokai have been are being interwoven into these characters in such a way that you're like, it makes total sense. Those yokai files at the end really helping you to understand like why you know it's not just because this oni is blue that this is now kurt it's also the fact that it's like uh centered around these like priest figures so you're taking in also all of those it's so exciting i think that when we were talking about the last issues we've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out who these extra people around ogan are and then to realize that it is you know thor and storm are ground and they are gods it just lines up so beautifully and perfectly with what the characters are it's just really stunning amazing work by Peach and the team of making this world more than just like an alternate universe yeah it also has like reimagined characters in ways that I like better sometimes <laughs> like Venom as Orochi is like the coolest shit it's a brilliant idea I love it and I would rather just see Venom like that from now on oh my god that was so awesome yeah at first, I'm just like, is that just the symbiote? And no, it was the symbiote over an actual Rochimaru, which are the giant like, snake demons. And I was like, fuck, this is <laughs> Like, you know, ogres, you had, you know, the gods, you had all these wonderful mythological characters. Like you said, they did really match up to the characters that they were representing. And in a lot of ways, Eastern and Western mythologies and storytelling do have a lot of shared roots it's just a matter of the storytelling is a little bit different and the two forms haven't really necessarily communicated before for a lot of not so great reasons but now we're finally seeing the east and the west woven over each other and it's making amazing new visually enticing stories that are just oh so delightful i love them so much 
I hope at some point this can put to rest the false war that I see sometimes on Twitter between readers of manga and readers of comics. Like they're the same format with different cultural stylistic differences, but they're both the same valid type of yeah. art form that I hate that war. And I love to see them merge together like this because hopefully that can just... people should be smart and read both. Yeah, I, hi- I highly recommend going back and listening to our interview with Zach Davison. He has been translating for decades now, and he has some excellent recommendations and a, and he wants and he gave a really great description of the idea of what are comics in Japan versus how comics from Japan are seen in America and I think he gives really really excellent points on on the whole idea and my hope is that you know Peach and Zach and Ariana are have done one series and are doing you know are getting ready for a second series but hopefully we'll be able to see more integration and more amazing amazing art and uh storytelling coming out of these kinds of endeavors yeah and i remember ariana when we talked to her and zach too was talking about this too like the deep love that manga creators have for the comics creators and the deep love that a lot of the comics creators have for manga creators so there's it just it is just so much fan drama that people bring up that fans create when the creators themselves both love and respect yeah that's your your usual false dichotomy i mean some people like to argue whether you should read marvel or dc or star trek or star wars and all those yep. people are wrong. <laughs> yeah, just read it all. Find what you like. Don't be, Absolutely. you know, rigid strictures of, oh, if I read DC, I can only read DC. I'll tell you right now, like growing up, if I saw a comic book and it had a cool cover, I was reading it. I did I... not give a damn about who made it. All I know is it looked really cool. I hadn't gotten into that toxic part of the fandom. And it's like, as I went on, people were like, oh, well, do you lean this way or this way? I personally lean towards Marvel. Does that stop me from reading like DC, Black Mask, Image, any of the other publishers? Hell no. If the cover looks awesome, I'm going to read it. Like, you know, Danica Shade is an independent comic book that I picked up and it's done by a great comic creator. And just like, I I loved it. I was like, I saw the cover. I wanted it, picked it up, read it, loved it. You know, read what you love. Don't, don't limit yourself. I love what this comic is doing to help build those bridges and help people realize that you can reach out outside of your normal sandbox and you know you might like what you see so i've had tori with me on all the covers that we've done of demon days so far but i know this is raven and steve's first appearance on demon days so i gotta ask y'all like for these the issues that we aren't covering because we're just covering the last two like what did you think of the story so far i've liked all of these i've been reading it since the first demon days x-men came out picked up mariko when it came out rising storm and blood feud have both been really good too i'm always really excited to return to this world and honestly my only like real criticism of the series is that it comes out quarterly instead of monthly so I can get more but like it's very clear that the time that's put into it is well worth the wait and I would keep reading this as long as I'd get an opportunity to I think even Blood Feud is my favorite of the series so far the very intense personal drama of their family history nobody's written to be stupid in this which I like because sometimes people are written to be like stubbornly stupid where they like just cannot get it through their head Ogi knows that and understands that Marco isn't actually to blame for the death of their mother it's just that she's been holding on to this feud for so long and it's all that's driven her and it's like not just gonna say okay i can't just forgive you now you know like there still has to be resolution there's still something between us and i love that the comic doesn't really like shy away from that and it doesn't end with like a perfect resolution either that like you might expect for something like as short as this it ends with more lingering questions and open wounds to pick at and i really really love that absolutely i agree like i've seen the covers before 
before and I've wanted to pick them up. And this was the first foray into Demon Days. And I mean, I have fallen in love with Peach Momoko over like the last, I want to say year, two years because of the artwork. It's just beautiful. Every time I see the covers, I have to pick it up. But getting to read entire comic books with that art. That is the huge draw, right? It, it, it For me, it really, really is because art can tell a secondary story to what the words are saying. Like the plot, the words of it all can give you a very interesting story to follow, but the art kind of needs to back it up. Yeah, and yeah. with this, it transports you to a completely different world. It's like reading a David Mack book. Yeah, absolutely. Peach Momoko, more than anything, reminds me of Mike Del Mundo. Not that they have similar styles, but they're both like almost exclusively cover artists who do some of the best work in comics today. Just like astonishing work. And they're both artists who like, I jump at the chance to read comic books that have interiors by them. You know, like this is the first Peach Momoko interior comic I've read. There might be others. I will look for them, obviously. I hope there are more in the future, obviously. And I know that we're going to get to continue this series, thankfully. But like, I'm the same way with like Mike Del Mundo or Pepe Larraz. It's like, I love their covers, but if I see that they've got a book full of interiors, I'm like, absolutely. I'm not going to miss the opportunity to check out an entire series of comic books by these people. Yeah, absolutely. David Mack, absolutely as well. I can't wait to see more of these retellings. I am a watercolor artist as well. It's like, I wish we could get one of these monthly, but I know how exceedingly intensive that artwork is. And Peach Momoko is doing other art for other books at the same time. So I can only imagine how intensive it is. I understand why we only get these quarterly. I just, I hope I can find all the other ones that have already been done. And trust me, you've got a hardcore lawyer fan because <laughs> I want more I want more I want more <laughs> sorry I gotta ask in the previous coverage you know you were just kind of leaning towards a theory and it seems like your theory was pretty vindicated I just feel like you know as someone who comes into these comics just not knowing anything about who is this x-man what is this power who's who's touching who these days you know to be able to like look at it and be like these two are sisters I was just like oh yes I was right Right. So I feel really vindicated and I feel like I fit in with the team more than just like being the person who's like, I don't know what's going on, but it looks real nice. (laughs) Like, I also appreciate that it has these ideas and themes of family and stuff that is seen so much in in Eastern comics that it was really nice to see it returned to where we are here. And I think that it was a really, it's, it's really excellent because so much of Mariko's journey is about who is she? Where does she come from? From. What is family? Those answers are hard to find if you feel that your entire family is dead. But then to come to find that one of them isn't can really like make this journey something more and something extra. And I was excited to see that this is where we were taking it. Yeah, they have a bond that is so important to both of them because they're their last living family that each other has. And yet one of them wants to kill the other. Although like there are several times during this issue where we see that Ogin doesn't actually like talks a big game, but doesn't actually want to kill Mariko because like, again, like this is your only family you have left like she might want to cause her pain but like to to sever that link now when they've just found each other impossible and to see thor around at the same time who has similar sibling issues of do i want to kill them or do i just want to make them sad for a while and then be like all right fine you've you've been sad enough and move on like i think that it's really something and is definitely things that i think about when originally when we covered the first issue we talked a little bit about the difference between a hero's journey and the magical girl journey and 
and whether or not they will eventually become one and the same. And I think that this magical girl journey does end with them, with Mariko coming home changed. I don't know what the hell that red thing was at the end, but I'm excited to see what comes of it. Once she gets back home and is delivered by her sister, there's something where there is always next steps. And I feel like a female's hero journey, once she becomes known for being actually good and seen and recognized, that there is no unringing the bell. Whereas the hero, once he proves himself, has some of them end with them resting on their laurels and being like, I have done the thing and now I get to retire. Exactly. So, Hey, I like that you mentioned that red thing at the end and I want to talk a little bit about that. Thank you for reminding me it was even there. I know that it's not the same. Obviously, this is just a continuing part of her journey into the yokai world, but it reminded me so clearly and so strongly of one thing and it was Chris Bachelot's run on Doctor Strange from 2015. Remind me so much of Doctor Strange, like walking through the streets of New York and being able to see all the little demons and monsters and ghosts and ghoulies that float around people, following them every day and like packing the New York streets. But nobody else ever sees them because he has the second sight. And now, now that she's been in that world, like she has that sight too. It, that's a part of her now, and it's awakened. It was like a weirdly powerful reminder of that series, and it just gave me this cool sense that there's a whole world of magic and monsters out there for her to interact with it doesn't have to to continue this story although i would like to obviously see them interact more but now i feel like she could go out anywhere into the marvel universe and have the same kind of you know the same kind of interaction the same kind of story conflict fight agreed from what i was reading about when we get to iron samurai the next the next series in this that mariko is still going to be a part of it somehow and as a person who probably should read the civil war comics at some point i don't know if she's (laughs) in them so I'm very excited to see how this all plays out, how it comes together, and I'm sure it's going to be fucking amazing, just like everything else about this series. Yes, this will be a great opportunity for Mariko to not be dead during the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to see how they're going to move this forward, and honestly, I want to see a a compendium or an omnibus at some point um, following Demon Days, because that just sounds like an amazing you know, coffee table book. There's a collector's thing right now, I think, out. Oh, yeah. That's got a edition director's cut of the first yes, issue. Yes, of the first issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got a bunch of extra art and things in it and talking about how things come together and all this stuff. So very exciting things. Yeah. I would love one of the big treasury editions like they did with Grand Design on Demon Days just to magnify that art. So what did we think about the Oni that represent Thor and Storm in the series? How do we like their interactions with Mariko? And sorry, they weren't actually Oni. They were gods. That was, uh, I think, Raijin and Fujin. Yeah, great to see them appearing and thunder and lightning should of course always be together and i think that's like such an obvious pairing but i don't always like when storm is a child <laughs> but this one works super little sister to thor on that well, I, re- I really appreciated that and she only looked like a child when she was in her Deceptive human form. form when she was released in that god form the the god of wind she became this beautiful black goddess and i loved that i love that so- and like uh, in fact during this entire uh comic book of rising storm storm actually has really good skin coloring which just made me so 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 happy because
because you know apparently it, it can be very hard to put dark skin coloring onto a character that is representative of the African diaspora and make it work but somehow here Peach Momoko with watercolors made it work absolutely beautifully and it just uh blue eyes and just perfectly done hair and perfectly done dark skin it was oh it was so gorgeous and amazing I loved it I agree I loved that the yokai files talked a little bit about how yokai can get elevated to god status with enough belief and gods can get demoted on down to oni or yokai status if they lose enough belief i really like how that can mean that they can kind of work together in these kinds of things be released and you know i have my own ideas on religion and stuff that are very of course western and catholic but i enjoyed learning a little bit about that and seeing what it's like to have these gods come in and work with um what would be considered monsters because they are monsters themselves but with just you know better pr <laughs> yeah i mean definitely the idea of like spirits in the spirit world uh spirits interacting in the human world are often monstrous even in western stuff you know you've got elves as like a kind of like a similar idea i think to a lot of oni representations but like i really like that there's less of a delineation there i don't want to speak for all westerners but at the very least catholics and christians are extremely uh touchy about their gods touching other things and they don't want the peas to interact with the corn uh, so that is nice listeners i really hope you're reading the yokai files at the end of this they're yeah. they're not like letters to the editor to skip over also read letters to the editor they're really good <laughs> I, mean, I would say that like these yokai files like i always read all the extra material that i possibly can but i think that these yokai files help really understand why it's these characters that have been chosen why it's these depictions of these characters how does it all link together i think is so so important to the understanding of the world and the thought process and the why these why now what's up kind of of it all it's also a really nice introduction to eastern mythos so you're you're not just getting oh this is why we chose it for this character but also giving us a little bit of history and background it's kind of that that breadcrumb that makes you want to go and actually do some of your own you know reading and searching and whatnot so now you actually have you know a direction you can go in as it were so i love yeah if you're not reading demon days and you're listening uh, the yokai files are probably more important than the x-men data pages and a lot of (laughs) yeah yeah for sure absolutely yeah it definitely is a lot of amazing information packed in there and it's not just all reading you get some cute art on it too yeah you don't, you don't have to read it like if you don't want to to enjoy the story but like you like reading that's why you're reading comics right <laughs> I picked up the Demon Days X-Men Director's Cut. Oh my god, the concept art in there was so gorgeous. I love every little extra bit of art I can possibly get. I am the art whore. We already know this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just like the, the art is so gorgeous. And like getting all that extras behind the scenes just oh, makes me happy. It is, especially when the art and the concept is so beautifully executed. Is this, this is one of those things where I'm going to like try to gobble up everything I can. It'll be like the gobbler queen (laughs) 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 but yeah it's something that i really want to get my hands on everything i can the way the first issue ended where we're thinking the big battle is going to be between baby hulk and mariko i love love the name like all the names are changed in this and i I really enjoyed that like kuroki being black widow and such and such but probably my favorite is hulk maru (laughs) (laughs) that one hurt my head a little (laughs) We get a beautifully executed
undisputed quick battle with Hulk Maru. And then we get to the main battle of sister versus sister. What were our emotions running up to this thinking, one, oh no, this is like the last we're going to get because, you know, we maybe didn't know it was announced that more Demon Days was coming as Demon Wars. But like, like we're like, oh, this is the last we're going to get to this world. Like, where were our emotions at into that final battle? I really liked this battle. I thought it was epic and beautiful. The dynamism of the fight is really interesting. The way that they emotionally interact constantly. Like, I mean, Logan coming in to save Mariko is like such a nice, clever moment for the dog. Uh, also, the dog gets like an eyeball ripped out and I, I could swear that eyeball what? was really missing. Patch? I think, yeah, it, it was just like reopening the wound. I, yeah, I guess it was just in there and closed, but at least he lost the bad eyeball. We'll get a patch for that dog. <laughs> I enjoyed this kind of superhero fight where there's a lot of like actual interplay and characterization. Also, some of the physical comedy of like Mariko getting punched is very funny. Her getting beamed with the hammer between the eyes. That was comedy. I'm, like going to put on her Oni jaw and being like, all right, now things are getting real. I'm putting on my armor and then just getting socked right <laughs> in the fucking jaw. Honestly, <laughs> very funny. They, oh, they did such a good job with like the interplay of, you know, comedy, of action, of body horror, like the drama. Yeah, it was done in such a good way that it felt like a really good blend between an anime and a comic book. And it kind of proved that you can blend those two art forms together. It's oh, so good. I'm sorry, I'm still pouring over the physical copies over here and I'm just eating oh, <laughs> it up. But I was like, it drew me in so quick and so intensely that when I kind of had that half realization that this may be the last I get to see of this particular world, I was like, no! I have to go back, I have to find the comic books and you know, I have to make sure that I get all of them because I didn't want this to end. This was so good and like then I get to hear that we're going to get more of it and I was I'm going to be looking for these books like a hawk if this was all we had gotten I would have been satisfied but mm -hmm. like I'm so desperately happy that there's more oh god yes yeah it's really funny that you bring up the like body horror of it all Zach was telling us that Peach actually has a background in horror comics and horror artwork and that's how Peach kind of came up in the world and so I've been very excited to see more body horror it's why when they dropped the cover for Demon Days Iron Samurai that's coming to see that our little Spider-Man is represented by like this multi-eyed furry creature. I was like, oh, hell yeah. Hell Bring yeah. it. So I really enjoyed the way that the grotesque growing of the Hulk, I thought that that was so wonderful to see and felt uh, very cool and golem-like. And then to go and the battle between sisters is both heartbreaking and brutal and was sort of everything that I was emotionally wanted from this. I think we needed the battle with the Hulk to be exciting and interesting and fast first and then to get into the emotional hearts of it was more important and the bigger battle. Yeah, I have enjoyed the increasing horror we've gotten from the Orochi to, you know, like the Hulk Maru and his like veiny weird arms and stuff and the horns coming out of his head. That thing at the end. I know we're all here for Peach Momoko. This is a Peach Momoko project. We all love her death and we love these interiors. But if I'm getting around interiors, is it possible I could get like a 
Junji Ito variant cover <laughs> coming up on these because I would love to lean into that horror aspect. Of I mean, did you see her cover for Inferno? Yes, uh, I got it. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. I would love to definitely see some more covers that have her just like really delving into that horror side because it's so good. Like it's there are so many details, so many little threads that you want to pick at. But I love how she's still able to throw all of that in in such a masterful way that we've got all of those elements but not one is really overwhelming the other so like we've still got a lot of the cool body horror but it's also done with a lot more emotional traditional comic style like look then you tie that in with the beautiful saturation of her colors I'm looking at the page where Nightcrawler character I always forget their name rescues Black Widow the beautiful expressions on their face and just the beautiful silence of that cage up until you know she's rescued from her hanging in blood draining you know it's just ah, so emotionally and beautifully done yeah i love all of the faces in this i'm a really big fan of pichamoko's ability to like really hyper stylize but at the same time like pull so much emotion and expression on them like the faces are always extremely nuanced in a way that i feel like a lot of really great western comics artists don't don't achieve even if they are extremely good at figures or composition like sometimes faces are a little difficult for people faces are hard faces are hard and getting nuanced minor expression change is so difficult i mean it's something that i see a lot in like really good manga that i read i know it's not common across all of manga but Pichimoko has a, a really good mastery of that ability to like give just the shape of a mouth and tell you what character is thinking or sometimes to just have marco get hurt and eyes <laughs> <bulge> <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah. somebody there is always very funny i think that those fights for such a beautiful and simplistic watercolor art style I say simplistic, but because the backgrounds are so lush and things like that. But like when it comes to economy of movement and economy of line work and things like that, that I think that the fights are still very evocative and movement based. The excellent uh, lettering work from Ariana Mar is really heightens the drama of the fights as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And speaking of those backgrounds, like I'm kind of glad a lot of them are left kind of like misty and liminal. Like it does give me that like fairy tale sense that we're in like another place in another time oh my god absolutely and <laughs> ariana mar has very quickly become my favorite letterer and like i, I think i'm gonna start looking for comics strictly because they're on them because i'm just like i think some of the lettering was done in not english and i it still got across what the sound was yes <laughs> which is hard to do but yeah oh it's oh i loved it it was so good like like each detail to this book was so beautifully beautifully done i'm sorry i'm having a fangirl moment just looking at it she does a good job not only with the lettering and the sound effects but like even some of the like the word balloon tales are like really fun and interesting like long loopy ones for when she's like kind of tired and like worn out i'm a big fan of just like shaking it up a little bit with your word balloon tales like hasan oe does like sometimes like block ended ones and that's like super weird for me to see but i like when people try something new and ariana mara has done a lot of that with the bubbles throughout this series yeah it's a testament to how part of said you only recognize the letterer usually if they're doing a bad job on something but 
but it like it just recognized the amazing love that she put into lettering this whole series throughout everything is and to be able to notice that in in a positive way is is it's just a testament to how amazing she is and this whole team i love them I, I i can't gush enough about them how did we feel about the wrap-up of the series obviously it left some things open-ended because now we know we're getting a continuation and i'm so excited about that but you know for mariko to end up in maybe the same place that she started out with but changed in so much of a better way was a great place for me to end the story because even if for some reason it hadn't been continued i would have been like cool i can see some cool adventures for her in the future and maybe i don't have to see them but i can imagine all yeah i mean like if they hadn't been continued i would just write fan fiction but it's got that kind of ending that you know i really love in a fantasy where when you're into serial and sequential storytelling like you're used to being like all right where's the next thing like give me the more it's sometimes easy to forget that like when you read a finite work a lot of the best endings are just endings where they're like and then there's more absolutely i I like the the fact that it was mildly open-ended and it it almost kind of passed the porch on to fans in a lot of ways so yes there will be a continuation but they've given it plenty of time and breathing room that if fans want to do like art or you know their own fanfics and whatnot you've got plenty of material to start with and plenty of places to go and yeah i think there's going to be like a bit of that gap where you can fit your own art into it i love the fact though that it invites you to continue the story as it has i really liked that i really liked how it was sort of like you could kind of feel that it was either a wrap-up in case it didn't go further but it also like that giant red thing that that shows up at the end is very much like a wait a second that can lead you into season two or just lead you to write a bunch of stuff on ao3 and see what happens so (laughs) i really like that and i feel like we are definitely going to see more from this universe and i think it's all going to be things that get us excited and get us interested and i'm so amped to see the takes on characters and ideas and how it fits into the mythologies that they're building it's going to be something to watch and something that's always going to be on everyone's poll list yeah it better be yeah absolutely there's no better use of your money than to buy all of these issues of demon days <laughs> like <laughs> Like, I can't think of one, so... <laughs> Starving, buy some demon days. <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> How do we expect the format of the new series to go? The Demon Days X-Men line kind of threw us for a loop after issue one, where we were introduced to totally different characters with the Mariko story, who we have continued to follow throughout the rest of the Demon Days run. Do you think we're going to get a sort of, like, story like that with the first one? And did it throw you for a loop in reading this X-Men Demon Days when you were reading it first. I know for me, the transition between issue one and two was probably the most where I was like, wait, okay, what? What's going on now? Like, where's where's Sai? Where's Mirage? Where's, oh, there's Patch at least. There's Logan. <laughs> so. I, I agree. The jump from issue one to issue two felt like the jump from an anthology series to an actual serialized story because everything since Mariko has been like part of one story and it's like a Mariko saga. I'm excited to see what the next saga looks like. I know the series originally started as an anthology and I think that maybe we've just gotten a long story as the second installment so if we're going to be switching around I, I'm interested to see if it's Civil War I hope it's a one shot <laughs> but I would love to see more uh, more continued stories spin out of this more sagas coming along. Yeah for sure for me I think it was so interesting for me when for the first issue of this Demon Days because it felt like we were allowed to have these alternate universe versions of these characters because it was like 
long ago and far away and it doesn't sort of line up. But once we moved into the modern day and we were still kind of getting these different characters and stuff, like there's no way that you can say that this fits into any other timeline other than itself right now. I'll be very interested to see how this schoolgirl from her tiny town by the mountain gets involved in civil war, which is such a huge thing. Either it, does that mean that it becomes less of a global universe altering event and that it becomes very much smaller and specific and localized? Mm. Or is she going to rise to the level that is, you know, Captain America versus Iron Man, Iron Samurai versus whatever we're calling Captain America? <laughs> I don't want to speculate too much. I kind of rather think it'll be something like that, like a local in Japan conflict between like warring daimyos or something like that, which I'm absolutely here for. If they want to work in any like classic samurai stories to this kind of thing to echo Civil War, that would be fun. If there's something from history or mythology or poetry that they want to do with that, that's cool. If they want to make it a global thing, that's fine. But I feel like that doesn't fit the tone of the series. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think it's probably going to end up being much more localized, but I'll also be interested to see if we see themes of family moving through it more or if it's going to move into a different kind of, you know, huge theme that involves growth and, and acceptance and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And I love how when you're thinking of the theme, like Peach was able to bring it back to basically the overall theme of X-Men, right? In the end, you know, Mariko's found family was the one that she ended up back with and the ones that were always there for her, which is one of the big themes, which I mean, is the big theme of X-Men, right? Your found family is going to be the family that's going to be there for you sometimes more than your actual blood family. So I would love to see if she goes with a different arc in that. That'd be really interesting to see, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting how when she leaves the mountain, she's absolutely back in like a very modern day city. But when yeah. she's up on that mountain, it could, feels like it could be any time in the distant past, even in the future. It's just like a fairy tale time and place. Um, I, I don't actually know what an isekai is, but this is maybe one. I think an isekai is more like a... It's usually attached to a hot springs, right? I don't know. I thought it was when you go to like another universe or something like a magical realm. did love how, to me, when Mariko was walking to school, it really echoed just like Sailor Moon in the way, like, you know, just yes. kind of like watching. Sailor Moon, Cardcaptor Sakura, like all of those. Yes. yes. I was like, okay, this is, okay, wow, this is rad. And then you've got the little extra like monster trailing behind her at the end. I was like, hell yeah. I could totally see the, the set of adventures ahead of her. And that is the sign of a good story. Like, you know, when you can just imagine where it's going to go from there. You know this character so well that you're like, oh, wow. So, you know, and we've talked about it before in some of the coverage, but I haven't had a chance to ask Raven or Steve, like, how do you feel about this use as of Mariko as the central character? I know when we interviewed Zach, he said Peach really wanted to take Mariko and make her her own character. So how do we feel about a character who in mainstream comics is unfortunately ancillary mainly to Wolverine in comics and as a role becoming the focal character for this world? I think it was a great idea. This I'm is like the best Mariko I've ever seen. I've Absolutely. never been so invested in her character. I've never cared so much about her. I don't think she's ever had this much character. Yeah. No, I I am a hundred percent here for it because honestly, I've wanted to have more story, more depth to her rather than her just kind of being the the antagonist to Wolverine's existence. Like I needed more 
more from her. And, and I, I wanted to see this and it was so good because it did not try to paint her as the villain. It simply painted her as a person who has been through some unfortunate and tragic things, who is having, having to open their eyes to a world that they didn't even know that they were a part of. And how do they, you know, have those two parts of their heritage and identity coexist? It was a wonderful new take to have on this character who's otherwise just kind of often just there just to be the antagonist to Wolverine. And I loved it. I loved the adaptation because it really did make it feel different. But also, if you know the history of like Wolverine, it, it felt really possible. It's almost like a what if universe. But instead of looking at through his eyes, through Mariko's eyes. I do love that Logan is just a dog yes. that she owns because that's uh, just the regular comics. He's the good boy. He's the goodest of boys. He's the goodest of boys. He's the goodest there is at what he does. I would say this is in current continuity. Like, Mariko has been way underused. Like, she was brought back from death in Old Man Logan. So, we haven't even seen on panel current Logan meet. Although, we got it mentioned in Ten of Swords that, you know, he went to go get the sword from Mariko. But, like, that would have been an amazing, like, reunion to actually see. Like They did talk to each other. It was a super weird choice of Percy to make that a text page. Yeah. I'm just going to point that out. That was an extremely weird yeah. choice, but that may have been the only time we've seen her. That's definitely the time I was thinking of. Yeah. Strange that she has not appeared up more in yeah. the current Wolverine count. I was thinking that would have been a, a really great emotional reunion, but no. But at least we get Mariko in Demon Days. Tori, I got to ask, so like you're a little bit more outside of the X-Men world. Like, do you think that knowing, you know, what we've talked about, do you think you'd be able to know who Mariko of the mainstream universe is even? And like, do you think, how do you think this version would compare? It feels like Peach is building a world that is never going to meet the other worlds. It's just going to have a bunch of stuff that is similar cycles, etc. I'm very interested to continue to see Mariko without Logan, if that's how she's so continuously portrayed in the comics as just like this satellite of Logan's. And so if you remove the Logan centricity of that system, can the satellite be be her own? I think so far in this series, we've, we've it's succeeded. Mariko's a very fascinating, interesting character who's built her own world and has her own struggles and her own needs. And I think that, you know, leaving Logan as a dog means that there's no... Because otherwise you'd spend the entire time being like, Mariko is here, where's Logan? You yeah, know no, what I mean? I think it's great. We know where Logan is and he just like cannot... He's just he a dog. Do the story because he's a dog. Yes. And like when <laughs> Thor and Storm are talking, they're like, oh, he doesn't remember us, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh no, are we going to get Logan transformed out of the dog? Like is oh, it, no. has Logan <laughs> been like cursed into doghood? But no, Logan is just an immortal dog. Like that's just, there's there's no, I, or he's such a powerful being that like it's going to be not Logan anyway. So like I'm very, I'm very excited to see what happens because so many, so many female characters, especially some of the ones that have been around for so long were created as satellites of male characters that were already existing. Yeah. And so to just completely say, strip that away, restart, redo, and that dude is never going to show up as a dude is such a fascinating, amazing way to decentralize the dude from these female character stories in a way that just completely erases it and frees them without any of the, the backstory history that you would otherwise have to take into account. Yeah, and the other things that come along with it, because if Wolverine was in this comic, he'd have to both be like 
in love with Mariko and also lusting after Black Widow. (laughs) There's so much. And I think that it was so interesting. Like when we started this, we were like, this is obviously like we're picking characters around Logan to be in this. I think that that's more just that Logan is pervasive in the universe and less like we're picking it specifically around him. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very excited to see, you know, where we're going next, what we're bringing up, what we're doing and how to even bring in characters who haven't like gotten touched by Logan before or like um <laughs> <laughs> you characters that haven't been touched by Logan. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like things that are even further degrees of separation away is really important. And I think that that is what is going to help Mariko to be even more strongly separated from the Logan beginnings that she's had. I think I was actually super excited to see Thor show up in this, if only because he's a character I do not associate with Wolverine. Like they have been Avengers at the same time, <laughs> but like not on the same team, I don't even think. Like it's yeah, they don't really know each other like that. But I love the fact that this story was very much more female centered. Like going back and reading through it, I'm like, oh, this is almost completely no, it is completely from the perspective of, of female characters and almost all of the characters uh surrounding them are, you know, they're female characters. But like even when they bring in the male characters, the male characters say minimal. Yes. We minimal, were talking minimal, about minimal. this in the beginning where we were just like, it almost is like the reverse Vestel. There's almost no men talking to other men at all yes. in this series. I don't think I saw any men talking over women, yes. which was refreshing. <laughs> oh my God, so refreshing. It was interesting to see how they changed the perspective, not only from, uh, you know, from being a Logan story to being a Mariko story, but also how they changed the narratives from being very male-centered to being much more female-centered, and those females being respected in every way. And I don't think I don't think I saw really a single sexism, which was kind of nice. Not not a one, not a one. And and the female characters didn't stand around talking about how much they wanted to be with the men characters, like right? Because yeah, so he's a dog. <laughs> it was ingenious. I was like I, mean, I was like oh my god, no, nobody's here to lust after Logan for, for once. Nobody lusting after Logan. Nobody lusting after Thor. Nobody lusting after Hulk. Like Nightcrawler. None right? of it. Like yeah, n- nobody was sitting around going yeah. <laughs> It was like, we we have a story to do. <laughs> it was nice to see, honestly. It was refreshing. It was really nice to see such a strong story told from the eyes of female protagonists. And the day wasn't saved by the mystical immortal dog. It was saved by Mariko and it was saved by her sister. Realizing that she didn't want to kill her. It was a story about family and it didn't fall into all the tropes that everybody always falls into. And love it. So, any final thoughts on this amazing... Demon Days X-Men series. Is there anything y'all want to mention? Anything that, you know, you just want to harp, you want to rave about one more time? Just the use of characters that each picked out. The use of the Yokai Files to get me to want to learn more about Izoni. Like, fucking amazing. And I just gotta say, like, the lettering overall, I still can't get over that, that panel of the Oni Venom with the hits, like, in the early issues. Like, oh my gosh, like, that's like one one of the best use of lettering I've ever seen. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And I was absolutely shouting about it at the time. It continues to be the best. I hope she continues to do an amazing job on this. I've been really enjoying her work on every book she's worked on from Hellions mm-hmm. to this. And I'm really looking forward. Absolutely. I honestly hope to see more from 
Ariana Mar and Pumiko because their them working together was absolute mastery, and I really want to see more coming from them. Please, just so much good art, so much good lettering. Oh. I will also say that as someone who uh, who comes into these things very clean, very very unknowing of what's going on, this is a great series where if you think the art is gorgeous, but you don't know any of the characters, you can just walk in and enjoy the story the easter eggs are not so don't take up so much space that you have to know who they are and i think they do a really great job of giving you an idea of who these creatures are what they're doing why they're here and i think what it'll lead to is for you to be like wait i feel like i've seen a little blue guy who pops around before like in the general zeitgeist like who is this guy and you're able to enjoy the story on its own but if you so choose to be like hey that looks familiar i wonder who that is looking it up is super easy and so i think that this is one of those where i would say like if you've got a friend who's super into manga but never got into x-men like this is one way to to drag them into the insanity i think it's a great way to bring in a friend to just kind of look at this and understand where you're coming from i just think it's a really great way to bring people into marvel comics x-men comics the these kinds of ideas and to enjoy themselves without feeling like they have no idea what the hell is going on Absolutely, because if you're reading this and you're an X-Men fan, you have absolutely no idea who any of these characters are anyway. Like yep. these, these are different characters, and I love it. Yeah. I, I could not agree more with you, Tori, on that. This is a great intro series for both X-Men fans and manga readers and people who just read in general. It's a good thing on point for anything because it doesn't require any homework. And you will not regret the investment of time on it either. <laughs> or even the investment of, you know, your bookshelf space or your yes. or your finances. Like this is this is such a beautiful work of art i think that this will create a lot of really gorgeous prints i haven't seen any beyond the peach momoko ones but the listings of who's been doing covers for these is astounding and i just i feel like this is one of my favorite series that i have covered on this show bar none Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now in the course of this next bit of coverage on Iron Fist, we briefly discuss a little bit more about the incredible Brubaker, Fraction, and Aja series that preceded this fantastic one and Yig endeavor on the characters. And I want to talk just for a moment about Immortal Iron Fist and collecting it. One of the things that always frustrated me was that the original Immortal Iron Fist omnibus was very incomplete and it only ran until the first two creators left, but ultimately what came out wound up being such a complete story and it gets really messy because this was a point at which Marvel was thriving on an atmosphere involving a lot of like throwback style in terms of tossing in one shots and annuals and so collecting Immortal Iron Fist can be pretty frustrating. Now there's going to be a new printing of the Omnibus coming out in August that does collect the whole fucking thing so it's going to be a lot easier. Now to set up the, the world of Immortal Iron Fist for one moment you have to take a look at Ed Brubaker's run on Daredevil. I swear guys I don't do this on purpose I do a little bit so you have to take a look at the Ed Brubaker run on Daredevil where he initially has Daredevil in prison by inheriting that storyline from the Bendis run and there's another Daredevil running around sure enough it's Danny Rand who's ready to commit to being a hero in a big big way spinning out of the events of that Danny Rand appears in a story from Civil War choosing sides where it really sets up that he's about to go on a big solo adventure kind of thing and from there we get the Immortal Iron Fist there's the Immortal Iron Fist one through nine 
which you don't really need to pause for the side stories. I do recommend it. You can then read the Immortal Iron Fist Annual Number 1. Jump back in for Immortal Iron Fist 10 through 14 before pausing for Immortal Iron Fist, Orson Randall and the Green Mist of Death. Then we're going to segue over to Immortal Iron Fist 15 and 16 and the origin of Danny Rand, which has like two page bookends on either side of it by Matt Fraction and David Aja. At this point, that creative team, Fraction, Aja, and Brubaker, all kind of hightail out. And we get a very new direction by Dwayne Swierzynski and Travel Foreman. And the book goes in a very, like, I don't want to say off the rails kind of place, but it definitely goes in a very strong departure. Now, I, at the time, was very critical of it, and I've since very much softened my opinion of it. And when I look at the bigger picture, it's a bumpy way to get to where they do get to. So I do recommend still hanging in for the following issues. Immortal Iron Fist 17 through 20, Immortal Iron Fist, Orson Randall and the Death Queen of California, and Immortal Iron Fist 21 through 27, at which point the series comes to an end, and is followed by The Immortal Weapons, which was a really fun five-part miniseries that explored the other immortal weapons that are introduced throughout the course of the run. The first issue focuses on the incredible Fat Cobra, and it's written by Jason Aaron with Dwayne Swierzynski, who, dude, I'm sure I'm saying your name so wrong. I am so sorry. I tried to find a proper pronunciation, but I mostly found people saying, how in the fuck do you say this, right? So there's a ton of amazing art throughout this story. All of these books featured a lot of incredible artists, so I just want to go out and mention Miko Suyan, who did the key art on this story, did an amazing job. From there, we take a look at number two, which features Bride of Nine Spiders, who is another amazing character introduced in this time. This one written by Cullen Bunn with art by Dan Brayton. Number three focuses on Dog Brother number two. And if you don't know how cool some of these characters are, man, I, I'm just getting excited talking about them. This one's written by Rick Spears with art by Timothy Green the second. Number four focuses on The Brilliant Tiger's Beautiful Daughter, a character I love very much, written by the last writer of the series, Dane Sprzynski, with art by Kari Evans, before David Lampham comes in with art by Arturo Lozzi to cover Prince of Orphans. Now, really interesting, Prince of Orphans is a character named John Amon, and John Amon is a fascinating thing to discuss because he's actually based on the Golden Age Amazing Man, created by Bill Everett, a guy who was known for his work on Daredevil. Now, now, Amazing Man was owned by Centaur Comics, so we're not really even talking about a guy who belongs to the Marvel Universe proper. He is the basis for, of course, Prince of Orphans, and it's believed that he had a large amount to do with the creation of Iron Fist himself, as well as the Charlton Comics character Peter Cannon, Thunderbolt. One final story appears in the pages of the Immortal Iron Fist and the Immortal Weapons Omnibus, which I would add to the end of all of this. It's Iron Man Avenger number one's backup story. It does really close out a lot of what's going on at that period in the character's life. And it is of note that there are several terrific and, you know, I mean, your mileage may vary on anything, but there are several terrific runs of Iron Fist that do follow with some incredible art by brilliant visionaries like Kari Andrews. And it's always worth looking at characters from all sides. That said, we've definitely discussed how there really isn't a need for more Danny Rand as like the best at Kung Fu stories. It's just not necessary. 
library, but there's a lot of really interesting ones that exist that are likely to come up in the pages of Alyssa Wong's phenomenal narrative that we're seeing unfold in the pages of the current Iron Fist miniseries. I can only hope that Iron Fist takes on this role that Marvel is trying to put Shang-Chi into, where he kind of had that rolling mini that went into an ongoing. I'm hoping maybe Iron Fist can do a rolling mini into an ongoing. And it would be a really great thing to see this character, Lin Lee, come into his own as not just a Marvel hero, as he was intended to when he was first created as Swordmaster, but as Iron Fist has always been meant to achieve, you know, some new heights for both this fantastic character and for the legacy of Iron Fist. Guys, as always, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week. It's always a blast to return to Magic Mondays. It's a bummer when we don't have just enough magic coverage to justify it, but I'm always excited when we're able to get that in there. We have Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays. This X-Men X Wednesday is going to feature so much Immortal X-Men that it's very likely to spill over into Marvel Fanfare Friday, where we're probably going to still be talking about the amazing first issue of Immortal X-Men. Now, as always, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I can't believe I get to say this again. Don't forget, you guys can find me in the upcoming Young Men in Love anthology featuring the incredible voices of artists and writers like Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss, Cena Grace, Joe Glass, and more. I can't believe my work gets to be in this incredible collection. And it comes out just in time for Pride Month. I couldn't be more proud than to be part of this. You can pick it up through Diamond Comics via April 22, 1275, or by ordering it from your LCS. Guys, we love making this show for you. So until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Next time's going to be a whole lot more immortal. Enjoy this last segment, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast, a show where we cover Marvel's mutants, magic, and training montages over here on the internet. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Nico, and you guys can follow me snickton along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we hope you survive this experience just like we hope to see that awesome badass pirate queen. Iron Fist at some point in some run. <laughs> well, let me tell you, if you look back and you check out Immortal Iron Fist by Ed Brubaker and David Aja and Matt Fraction, you can get her first ever story, and she is amazing. And that must mean we're covering Iron Fist number two, written by Alyssa Wong, pencils by Michael Yig and Sean Chen, inks by Michael Yig and Victor Olazaba, art by J. David Ramos, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Okay, so we are now continuing along our story of the new Iron Fist, where Lean Lee is the new Iron Fist chosen, and I would love to know, how are you guys feeling about this character taking on the mantle, and how do you think he's handling this responsibility? I mean, it's like a beautiful disaster in the best possible way. We talked with Alyssa Wong about her process of picking a character to be the next Iron Fist, and I love the thinking. I think this is a really cool character to use. I think it's so 
important not to make it like this is just the new Iron Fist and get excited about it and we're just going to write this book as though this makes total sense and you should just accept him. The whole setup right from the beginning is this is a challenge. This is somebody who from a internal continuity logistics standpoint probably should not have this power, but that is going to make a really interesting story and give you a character that you want to follow because you can sort of have that experience of like, yeah, I'd probably be pretty screwed if somehow I became the Iron Fist too. So it's a disaster, but I'm loving watching it. And I think part of it has to do with tying into the idea of what Iron Fist really is. It's sort of like a passed on tradition, kind of like knowledge. You know, I mean, I know it involves the still beating heart of a dragon, which perhaps makes it a little bit different than the classrooms I'm used to, uh, depending on the grade level. But I think one of the things that's fascinating about the interaction between the ideas of Iron Fist that have always populated the titles throughout time and seeing a new character that's an old character take on the idea is it changes the perspective on learning. How frequently do we see a character learn multiple things multiple times, multiple ways? Now, not everybody has gone back, I'm sure, and read Swordmaster, but should you, you will see the same character coming of age and learning about his abilities as they tie into his lineage. And then we see him here doing it again, but we see it in a very different perspective and we see it involving something that we're used to from the Marvel Universe. Now, not to put a sort of unattractive point on it, frequently when characters become legacy characters, it's just kind of shades of the same thing with a new spin. This doesn't feel like that. This really feels like an intersection of different ideas creating kind of like a nexus of perspective on both sort of like the underutilized characters of the last few years, uh, especially some of these tremendously well-thought characters meant to represent missing cultural elements of the Marvel Universe, and then taking an idea like Iron Fist that, you know, certainly by the last four or five years, it's just left an awkward taste in our mouth that the white guy is the best at being Asian. So I feel like this is, for all intents and purposes, the book that I need it to be to move me out of being afraid that Iron Fist can't ever grow up into a, and I don't mean to grow up like out of being a child, but I mean grow into modern thinking. And if for no other reason, when you look at the previously on page with the amazing credits, which is page two of the digital, it really does look like it says the mighty sort of fucksy. And I I love that so much. Nico, I think one of the interesting things that you bring up is the one of the real problems with previous Iron Fist is Danny's cultural and ethnic heritage put in juxtaposition with this power that he's received. And in this book, one of the things that we have seen, particularly in this issue, is the problem of a person that does not belong to the Iron Fist tradition coming in and taking the power that people feel doesn't belong to him is actually still present. And, you know, the how Lin got to Kunlun and how he got this power is a problem for the people around him. I think that's a really important part of Iron Fist storytelling. It was really smart to divorce it from a problem with whiteness as well and to separate those two things out to still give us this sense of we are seeing an outsider come into this power, but we're no longer concerned about optics and representation when it comes to the outsider. And now it's really about like, what what are the interesting 
interesting things that we can take from an outsider story, not the problematic and unfortunate things. Absolutely. And I love that Danny still has a role in this comic. And I love that it seems that Danny really only cares about making sure this Iron Fist is set up in a way to carry that mantle because he knows how hard it is and he knows the struggles that he has gone through in order to maintain the training to be Iron Fist as well as what it means to not be Iron Fist. Yes, Danny, it is normal to have back pain. Everybody has that, unless you're Luke Cage. Well, and you know, I want to just point out that we can make some interesting parallels to that because I think you're right. Danny's job here is a job of uh, kind of protectorate, but one of the things that I think is necessary to remember is when you become a person who puts yourself out on the internet, you're basically putting a target on yourself in some ways. You are saying trolls have a field day because that's just what the internet can be. When you become a superhero and you put that dragon on your damn shirt, you're saying everybody who has a problem with this dragon, everyone who's had a problem with the last seven of these dragons, come for me, bro. And if Danny doesn't come in and sort of be like, hey, buddy, here's how we have to operate within this idea, then he's really leaving his successor out to get grievously hurt. Also, we're seeing Danny in a role of nurturing another person who could be Iron Fist in pay. That was a really interesting contrast for me, the way that we saw him in issue one go to the person that is currently Iron Fist and say, hey, like, let me give you some advice. And then in this issue, we see that he is fostering and taking care of somebody, also a young person that is associated with potentially taking the power of the Iron Fist. So we're really seeing him in all ways in a guiding and parental and protector role, which is appropriate for him right now. Yes. I love that we get to see Danny with some defenders. I think it's just been a long time since I've personally seen them and run into them, specifically Cough Cough, Colleen Wing, you're an icon. And something I also really appreciate about this is there are two pages dedicated to Danny in this entire issue. And I feel like that's like the perfect amount for Danny to have involvement at this point in the story. I think it made a little more sense to have him more involved in the first issue because I think that clashing of identities of who Lean Lee is as Iron Fist comparative to Danny Rand as Iron Fist, I think that's an interesting point to start on for a comic. But I'm ready for us as readers to get to know the new Iron Fist in a way where I don't feel like he's competing for time and space in his own title against the previous Iron Fist. And I really love that in this issue, Danny got two pages. And I think I just personally think that was, you know, the perfect amount. I think, though, to your point that Danny is only, like, in two pages of the book, really, he's on the cover. And that's something that I know we're talking a lot about lately, about sort of misrepresentative covers. And that's not exactly my argument here. But I think one of the mistakes that we've often seen in titles where they try to hand off the baton is a lack of that other person. I truly wonder if one of the reasons that it took so long for people to just give up trying to fight us on Laura is Wolverine is because Logan wasn't around to be like, no, this is the correct call. You're all stupid. And, you know, it's because old man Logan wasn't Logan too. You know, it's that same vibe. There's a sort of credible authenticity lended by putting the inauthentic, credible character on the cover that by not polluting the plot with a needless amount of, oh, but didn't you know Swordmaster always worked for the Rand Corporation? Like, it's not that. So this really is the right kind of misrepresenting me with a character on the cover if such a thing exists? I think it does. That has been a concern we've talked about on the podcast across many different books where covers, I don't want to say are misinformative, 
narrative, but lead, I think, comic readers to believe one thing and we're get, we get something else. And there, you know, you can subvert expectations, you can subvert ways of thinking, and you can change things on their head. But I think for the most part, comic readers, when they see a comic, whoever you put on the cover, generally expect to see them at least in some capacity. Well, or, you know, you can make the argument for some comics that the cover is an iconographic image that is speaking to the spirit of the issue. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Is Danny in the Iron Fist costume fighting the demon warriors with Lean? No, but he spiritually is in the book and his Iron Fist is informing this battle that we're seeing the new Iron Fist go through. So it works. I mean, it represents the spirit of the issue, although there is no like canonical scene where they're fighting like that. That's perfectly fine with me. Absolutely. And speaking of spirit, in a segue to my next question, when Mei and Lin come back to Kunlun, they are confronted by Yang Yi, and I found this conflict and antagonist, because I won't say villain, that was an interesting uh, obstacle for Lin. And I wanted to get your guys' opinions on this idea that there are people in Kunlun who aren't accepting of Lin as Iron Fist because they don't feel he deserves it, where people feel like they're often owed this certain idea or thing because this is what they've been training for, this is what they were promised, this is what they were told. You know, you're told if you follow these XYZ steps, you're going to be the new Iron Fist, and none of them were chosen. I thought this was such a fascinating conflict to introduce where we see Lean have to deal with the struggle of already not feeling like he can really control the gifts of being Iron Fist, but to have people, the people that he's meant to protect, kind of say, you're kind of a pretender, is pretty fascinating and a really interesting conflict to be introduced at this point in the story. And I wanted to get your guys' opinion on that. So, you know, this is a huge element of Iron Fist that goes way, way back. There have always been people that have kind of been like, oh, but Danny Rand, you're not from here. And it does often feel like they just say, oh, you're just not from here. They don't come quite out and say, pretender to the heritage. They just sort of say, little adopted boy. And it's not really the same sort of call out that it needs to be. Now, of course, there's the sort of, um, if Iron Fist represents a yin, then Davos represents a giant bastard man. And he is very much, you know, it should have been mine, it should have been mine. And one of the things that we see about it should have been mine characters in fiction are all, they're always just so gross. They're always so, you took my thing and now I will kill all of the people. And I just sort of like that we're seeing a cultural opposition that, well, I don't agree with it and I don't care for it. Though I, you know, I do understand it. We're seeing these characters not be like, like, it's not watching the weird sisters in the first season of Sabrina be like, but what if we cut Sabrina open and sewed her back together inside out? Like, these guys are just kind of like, we don't like you, let's fight. I think that that is a very reasonable opposition to give our new Iron Fist and I do love UT showing up and I love her so I love her training him you know this is the best case sort of ruin fighting situation I can think of it's as I said before the fact that we continue to have the conflict of an outsider gets access to this power is showing us that this is kind of a fundamental part of an Iron Fist story that even if we have somebody who is not a white man so we're not worrying about that is still 
still somebody who, for whatever reason, people feel like shouldn't be a part of this. I feel like there's also a really interesting potential for storytelling possibility about this idea that these are people that are trying to be sort of hermetically sealed and xenophobic in their traditions, but like fate just keeps getting in the way of that and showing us that like the Iron Fist power is meant to be a very global thing and something that is a part of the world and not sort of hidden away. So the conflict of whoever is Iron Fist is going to drag you people kicking and screaming into a world that you want nothing to do with is kind of amusing. It was just something that I really appreciative, and I think because it happened so early in this run, and I, I have no idea how many issues this get. I personally am on the board of like, keep it going forever. Uh, forever to the end five. of time. I, I could read it. Well, five. that's not forever yeah. to the end of time, but that's fine. I'll it's live. five ever, but it's not forever. I hated that. Yeah, I felt pretty bad about it, too. What I found so fascinating about it is I think it just works for this character's journey so early on. And if this was like, like, say we had the original Iron Fist on with Lean Lin, and then we got, you know, we got some more issues later, and then this was conflict, I'd be like, well, I don't know if this really works, because he's been Iron Fist for a while, and so now people tend to have a problem with it. But because it's so early on in his journey as an Iron Fist, I think it just works here as like, the, if every Iron Fist has to go through it, you have to, and we're going to get it out of the way right now and then that leads to a fun training montage and i know us i know we love training montages <laughs> but i love learning the history about iron fist and i actually love the talk about tradition and what that means where there are some traditions that are beautiful and amazing and great and i never want to knock anybody's traditions on anything but i do love that there's a conversation that sometimes tradition just means it was done a certain way for a long time and i would love to know your guys's opinions and feelings on these characters' conversations of what tradition means to them and understanding that you don't always have to follow tradition, that you can do things unorthodox and still come out the exact same way. So the thing I liked most about it was that it called back to a thing that had happened previously in the issue, another like not quite training montage, but um, Iron Fist's flashback to the previous teachers that he's had, Shang-Chi, Crescent and Io, White Fox. He's bringing this idea that there are different ways that a person can learn and there's different ways that a person can come into knowledge and power. He's being told, you don't have discipline. You didn't learn the way we learned and therefore you do not deserve this thing. And his response is, you're right. I didn't learn the way you learned, but I did learn. I learned in my own way. I learned from these amazing teachers. I'm not a hyper-focused, hyper-disciplined learner. I'm a very broad jack-of-all-trades, know a little bit of everything learner. And I think like on a very grand messaging scale, that's something that, you know, we we elevate and laud the, the hyper-focused learner. And we say that sort of the jack of all trades learner is, they don't put in the same work. They're not, they, they don't have the same, like, you know, depth of knowledge. It's just a different thing. And so we see him making that argument and, you know, having this fight. And then later we go back to somebody saying, I see you and recognize you as valid. I'm not trying to say that you are required to do it the way we do it, but I would like to show you a part of our tradition and I would like to sort of have you embrace the knowledge and skill set that I have. To me, it's a really important thing that we see that both Iron Fist can be something different and also that he can learn from the people around him that are, you know, part of this tradition. And I like that we're still talking about sort of the art of learning as it relates to this book, because Iron Fist is always about learning. If we sort of take a 
look at one of my big problems with a lot of like fictional academies. They just do their thing. They just do magic and no one learns math. And I'm like, that's really stupid. Or they learn history of just their thing, but nobody knows the name of the Secretary of State. And I'm just like, that's also pretty stupid. And I like that, you know, in Kunlun, there is a focus on physicality. There is a focus on studies. There is a focus on oral tradition. There is a focus on meditation. There's so much that represents a holistic sense of self and oneness that is sort of like endemic to what an Iron Fist goes through as training. So even if you don't get the still beating heart of Shao Lao the Undying, you're still a motherfucker to be reckoned with. And that is one of the best things about this character. I love that we're seeing him learn something new that I am familiar with as a course of study and like I genuinely think what Alyssa Wong is crafting here with the number of brilliant artists that are working with her that is making every single one of these guys look like a fucking shonen hottie which I know is her whole goal she flat out said it I'm on to you Alyssa I remember the things you say to me so I really think seeing this exploration of learning in different modalities and of contrast in not just learning style but execution of that information has created a a very rich sense for just two issues. I don't feel like I'm walking away with two issues of Iron Fist under my belt. I feel like I'm walking away with six. That I really agree with. This feels like we're diving headfirst into this new status quo in such a way that I think it's going to be very lasting. And I feel like we're going to walk away feeling like we got a lot more story than technically was actually there. But it's so deftly done that we're going to walk away with a sense of like, this is the new Iron Fist situation. We're not going to be waiting to go back to the Danny Rand status quo. Yes, I'm really excited about this new status quo myself, and I'm really excited to see how we're further going to push the boundaries on who Iron Fist is as a character now that we have somebody new carrying this mantle. We get to see Lian's brother uh, come back, and he is looking to... looks like he's coming to pick a fight, and I would love to know your guys' predictions on how this family reunion is going to go and what exactly Lian's brother has in store for the world. I need to start with that he just looks like he's here to piss me off. I want to slap this man. open palm across the face right away. Uh, I don't know anything about Lin Fang, but I promise you, I don't like him. And I can tell you why. Number one, get those fingers out of my face. Number one. Number two, that hair has to be a choice. That is not how anyone's hair falls. He decided to walk in with shitty antagonist hair. And I'm not here for that. And, you know, ugh, it's so smart to make it his long lost brother. I hate that I love it, but I do because I don't like long lost family stories like first of all that's an that's a mm-mm, I'm waving my finger with like some severe network but number two right I really genuinely think that when you say oh you didn't know this person was a part of that person's life it only informs things from now on it doesn't inform things going further back but in this case because the character is in such a completely new malleable form because who Swordmaster was is now who Iron 
Fist is. This is a really interesting, again, nexus to introduce a character that represents something unexpected. You know, Lin could remain Iron Fist and this guy could become the Swordmaster. We don't know how it's going to go. So I'm fucking stoked. And I hate this guy, but I'm excited to hate him. He um, is dressed like his top selling album came out on the modern rock charts in 2002, which I think is hilarious. Um, the vest, the like high collar with the button down to mid chest. It's just, he really did choose a style, hair, clothing, everything. And it is meant to say, I am a dick. And lo and behold, his sort of attitude and behavior matches that. I think it's, we have such a blank slate villain situation here. It can go really any way that Alyssa Wong wants it to. But I think what we've seen of how she writes her characters and how she writes interpersonal conflict and based on how much I think we're all kind of starting to love this new Iron Fist this is a conflict that I'm really excited to see and Nico I love that idea that this might be the new Swordmaster if Lin Lee is going to become the new Iron Fist permanently. Oh boy all I can say is I'm looking forward to some uh, juicy family drama some tearful reunions and I'm also hoping that eventually we can have Lin have his arms let's get some let's get the swords out of there (laughs) That that just sounds very painful. And I can't imagine having sword pieces embedded in your skin and then basically vibrating anytime something bad might happen. It's too bad that magical surgeon guy died and we can't get those out. But that's even like part of it for me. I don't love my power comes from pain. It's just like a level of kids hurt yourself to become strong that I don't think we really need. But one of the things that is oddly compelling about the sword being in his hands is his past is embedded into his future. The Iron Fist is a fist and his past is now embedded into it. And it is an interesting metaphor. I would probably love to see the sword absorbed into him. Like that would maybe be a little bit more compelling. And you know what? His brother can hold the hilt and like get like an energy blade going and like, I don't give a shit. But like, I love this idea that even if the shards come out of his hands, they remain in who he is as a character. As much as I would love to see his horrible, horrible, I mean, his brother looks like a fucking Yu-Gi-Oh card, okay? Um, I, as much as I would love to see his brother become the new Swordmaster, I don't want to see the things that defined Lin like so far removed from him because he's really becoming a puzzle that I'm enjoying seeing. Like, it's almost like I keep thinking the puzzle's as big as it is and then we keep kind of pulling back and I keep seeing how many more pieces make up the border and it's exciting as a fan who's always waiting for something new to be different. I'm finally reading something new that feels different, but it's steeped in things I already liked, which is the best kind of tea. I wish I had more to say on it in some ways. I think that the true hero of this issue that we didn't really talk about is the stunning art, which manages to combine elements of fantasy and kind of like high classic storytelling, especially in those opening sequences with Shao Lao the Undying. You know, this art team is creating a complex visual narrative that represents a wide berth of the elements that paint together these two characters in this unique new synergy and I feel like as amazing a job as Alyssa Wong is doing and she's truly doing a breathtaking job it is one of those things though if it weren't for this incredible art team executing it with this dexterity and this deftness I think we would possibly be looking at a clunk she's putting so much on the page that this art team has really got to bring it and thank goodness they are hell yeah yeah 